Welcome to this slightly longer than normal episode of Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and this week we are joined on the podcast by Democratic candidate for president and senator Cory Booker. Reporter Megan Messerly sits down with him to talk about diversity in the race, how the Democratic Party chooses who qualifies for a debate, sex work in the state, national health care, and much more. After that, reporter Michelle Rendells and I sit down with intern Mark Hernandez to talk about an upcoming story on the state's ethics commission. At the end of the episode, I've got a rundown of the indie staff's favorite Christmas movies. But first, let's hear a few indie stories that we read on the radio for our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. Workers have finished installing three large monument-style welcome signs near the state's borders that each cost as much as a house. The Nevada Department of Transportation announced last week that it installed a Welcome to Nevada sign along Interstate 11 near the Hoover Dam Bridge at a cost of nearly $400,000. That's also the median price for a home in the Reno Sparks area last month. The new sign, which is nearly 20 feet tall and 8 feet wide, is made out of concrete and has the state flag in the middle made to look like the shape of Nevada. The three monument signs are in addition to about 25 cheaper signs installed since 2017 when the Nevada Department of Transportation began replacing the traditional lone prospector signs that featured the drawing of a miner. Some critics have questioned the expense, saying the cost of the structure seemed a little steep. For KUNR News, I'm Mark Hernandez with the Nevada Independent. Nevada Governor Steve Sisolak is pushing back against a request from Lincoln County officials looking to recoup some of the money spent preparing for the Storm Area 51 events in Rachel and Heiko. Emergency managers from Lincoln County say preparations for the Storm Area 51 event, a viral joke that called for people to raid the infamous military installation north of Las Vegas, cost them close to $130,000 in supplies. That's on top of the cash needed for extra man hours, adding anywhere between eighty dollars to $100,000 on top of that. Both Lincoln and Nye counties declared states of emergency ahead of the event, saying they feared crowds that would overwhelm local infrastructure and resources. The declarations are required before the state can consider providing reimbursements for the response. Lincoln County Sheriff Kerry Lee said a decision to improve two festivals around the same time as the social media event was a way to ensure people had a place to go for constructive and legal activity. But Sisolak says county commissioners undermined their case when they gave the green light to the parties and invited large crowds to come. For KUNR, I'm Michelle Rendells with the Nevada Independent. Well, first of all, I wanted to say we have New Jersey Senator Cory Booker on the podcast with us today. Thank you for being here. I appreciate it, but shouldn't I get some special Nevada cred special, for uh, being like a part of this state since yes. my family moved out here in the eighties? You do, you yes. do. You get you're an honorary Nevada, and I think Thank we can give much. you that. I've yeah. been in your mom's house and talked with you and your mom earlier this summer. Yes, so we, we appreciate that. So I wanted to start off talking a little bit about some of the news going on this week. I should say that we're recording this podcast on Wednesday. This will be released on a Friday, so we're going to be talking about some things that have already happened. Yes. But um, I wanted to start off talking a little bit about the debate that's coming up this week. There's a debate coming up this week? There is a debate coming up, um, which I know you won't Wow, it's here. not on my calendar. What it's not talking? on your calendar. It is on many of your uh, opponents' calendars. Yes. Um, so you won't be appearing on that stage, but you've been leading this push for the DNC to change its debate qualifications moving forward for the January and the February debates. So talk to me a little bit about your concern with the process as a state right now of, of arranging those debates and qualifying for them. So let me first say, I have not been leading. I've been a leader amongst many. Remember, the the New Hampshire 
uh, Democratic Party did a resolution basically saying this is just not working for what, excuse me, what the Democratic Party stands for, which is a party that is trying to correct the influence of money over politics, trying to make it a, a, a not government fair and to have a system that selects for people that can literally just buy their way onto stages. And so I, I've been critical of this process, not as it relates to me, but as it relates to our party in the sense of uh, now selecting out a lot of the diversity in our party, now giving more emphasis to people that have tremendous personal wealth as opposed to people like Kamala Harris, who has tremendous uh, qualifications, winning in a state of 44 million people. So it is. it, it has had unintended consequences. Um, but again, I'm focused on my campaign. We are literally thriving. If you would ask me three months ago if we missed a debate, we would have thought that was a mortal blow. Now we actually see it as just a, a happening, but we are actually surging right now on every measure of our campaign. And I just want to thank people. I mean, we've we've had our best online fundraising stretch uh, for the last month or two that we've seen in the entire campaign. The energy from our organizers on the ground is palpably shifting in our favor. We're even, ironically now, because there's been so few polls from the last debate to this one on, coming up on Thursday night, we're now suddenly seeing us pop up to 4% uh, in some of the polls. So we're happy with where this campaign is. However, I think when that debate happens on Thursday night, there will be something very unfortunate about that stage. Yeah, and I, I know this is something that's, I mean, you talked about it just now, but this is a concern as we look at the, the presidential field, right? And you have the candidates, the four candidates that are polling at the top are not candidates of color, right? And like you said, California Senator Kamala Harris dropping out of the race, yourself looking at uh, Secretary Julian Castro, right? And these candidates of color that like you're you're talking about yourself and Senator Harris have these, you know, impressive backgrounds, but have not caught on in the way that those other candidates have. And I'm wondering why you think that is. And if it if really it is a, a race issue, well, first of all, it's an issue with this larger race for the White House. Yeah. It's an issue for our party, which is increasingly wonderfully a rainbow coalition, mm-hmm. and it is an issue for our party because there are millions of people in our party whose lived experience is not reflected on a campaign stage. And you know what I heard after Kamala dropped out of the race from people who are my supporters was this frustration, this anger, this sadness and disappointment because it it just felt like something about it just didn't seem fair. Mm -hmm. You know, her and John Kerry campaign uh, were really similar. They both were having troubles. They both tore down campaign staff in other states, folded them all into Iowa. They both had stories about things going on in their campaign. Kerry, I think, fired his campaign manager, if I have it right. But then John Kerry wrote himself a $5 million check. Right. And Kamala literally said, I'm dropping out of this race because I'm falling a few million dollars shot. She didn't have the money. Right. Yeah. And so what is that saying? (laughs) I mean, really, what is it saying about our party? That the only people that can really compete is folks that have, you know, the ability to write themselves $5 million checks. And then the other thing is we are living in an age where our party has shown campaign cycle after campaign cycle that polling is one of the worst indices for predicting future performance. Mm -hmm. Never in in our party, we're in December right now, never has there been somebody who's been leading this far ahead in the lifetime of anybody, any of us, leading at this point that's going on to the White House. Right. And so here we are prefacing something on polls, which we've seen Bloomberg step in, run an unprecedented amount of online ads, juicing up his poll numbers, and suddenly that makes you a viable candidate as opposed to people we've seen fall out 
who have incredible, and again, it's diverse candidates, Kirsten Gillibrand, Julian's still in this race. Mm-hmm. And so for states like Nevada, states like South Carolina, the states that we need, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, these are diverse states and, and, and a diverse electorate that you need to appeal to. And, and people don't forget, we can't forget that if Hillary Clinton had got the same amount of African-American votes in terms of turnout mm-hmm. that Barack Obama did, she'd be President Hillary Clinton right now. So our party essential to it is being able to capture the energy of uh, of black and brown communities. That's essential for us to win and sending the messages that the system isn't fair, that it works against people who have their lived experiences. That's really unfortunate. Right. It's like you were talking about the the debate stage. It's going to be essentially all white candidates except for Andrew Yang, right? And looking at that, I mean, is it that? Do you think the country's not ready for another president of color? Like, what what is what is it? Why is it right that that we don't see you know candidates doing better? Right? That would be more diverse and more representative. Yeah, the but country. the only when you say doing better, mm-hmm. the only indice you can say that they're not doing better on is polling, and we've mm-hmm. already established that that's not the best indice. So if you look at the measures, let's just take Iowa for example. If go from John Kerry and John Edwards, who were polling sixth and seventh at four and two percent, and then one month later in the caucuses, mm-hmm. they go on and win one and two. The indices that matter here's a candidate of color that's doing extraordinarily well. We're up mm-hmm. to number three in net favorabilities mm-hmm. in Iowa. We mm-hmm. are leading in endorsements in mm-hmm. Iowa and New Hampshire of all the candidates. We unequivocally, according to independent local news agencies like the Des Moines Register, say that me and Elizabeth Warren have the best organizations on the ground. So all the things that actually do translate into wins, we have one of the highest performing campaigns that are out there. So the only indice that we're not doing, quote unquote, well is polling. And let me just tell you, I would not, if I listened to the polls when I first ran for city council, they would have never had me over three or 4%, but we won that race, mm-hmm. grassroots organizing. When I ran for mayor, we were considered not even a shot of running. We had a pollster then that told us, don't run. Mm-hmm. So most of my camp, especially if you're a, a, a non-traditional candidate uh, who's new on the scene, you're going to be told. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter, no chance, who's pulling at single digits, went on to the White House. Bill Clinton from uh, Arkansas, who's ever heard of Hope Arkansas, went on to win. And a black candidate who people thought we weren't ready for a black candidate, but actually that African-American candidate turned out to be the best person to create the coalition that we needed to not only have a, win the White House, but to win the Senate and the House back. Because African-American voters, Latino voters, the growing Asian-American majorities or, or uh, participation in this country, the candidate that can best ignite that rainbow coalition is the one we need. So is America ready for another diverse candidate? In many ways, those diverse candidates have shown the best ability to get uh, um, to not only win in places like Iowa, but to get that full coalition out. Mm-hmm. So thinking about those, you know, the, the qualifications, right, that you need right now to get on the debate stage, which are, you know, donors and and polling. Um, I know some of the concern has been, you know, we're talking about the influence of money in this race, right? And if you're a wealthy individual who has money to throw at it, you know, you can go up on air and that helps you with, with polling, right? But we've also seen on, on the donation side, Tom Steyer has been able to get a lot of d- donors. <laughs> Yes, right. Yes. Um, even though he is, you know, definitely funding his campaign. So, I mean, what, what what's the answer then? If those two things shouldn't be the qualifications, and I mean, even if you take just one of them, right? It seems like there's still issues with either of those metrics in terms of the influence of money. So, uh, what should the qualification then? Yeah, be? Uh, and I, again, I want to say I didn't know this until mm-hmm. this presidential campaign that if there's a formula mm-hmm. that if you spend X amount of money, you can probably get one donor. So sometimes that formula is like a thousand dollars for a donor, right, but if right. you, so. I think what the thing, the point I'm trying to make is, mm-hmm. is we should have wrestled with this to figure out what the fair way is. 
and and I, and, and I don't I'm not going to prescribe that, mm-hmm. but I do think that the party that stands for equality and inclusion should have a, a much better process for for figuring this out than what is being man, made manifest now mm-hmm. in terms of the unintended consequences. So look. This is not my daily consternation right now. We are running a campaign to win and win the old-fashioned way. In Nevada, we have north and south have campaign offices open. We are racking up endorsements in this state with exciting announcements uh, to come. We are uh, first campaign out there in the rural areas of this state. Mm -hmm. Um, We are doing what we believe we need to do to win Nevada. It is very personal to me that the state where my mom will caucus. Of course. Uh, um, who I told <laughs> Who's my, she caucusing for? If you asked her. <laughs> she is she is signed a commitment to caucus card. Okay, <laughs> um but but uh you know this state it, from the very beginning to me, having spent mm-hmm. so much of my life here, sure. we we we're investing in it. And so this debate stage we now realize is not going to be determinative. If this mm-hmm. the campaign the the debate of you know nice mm-hmm. before Christmas um, it's just not going to determine the outcome of this election. And we now, thanks to people donating to our campaign at rates we've never seen before, we're going to do what Steyer and Bloomberg and, and some of the other well-funded campaigns are doing is we're now start, starting to advertise on TV. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about our pathway to the presidency and even more excited that our pathway seems – this underdog pathway seems to be the way we've elected those presidents who have been movement leaders. Mm-hmm. Remember, I don't want to just beat Donald Trump. I want to beat Mitch McConnell. And the only way we're going to beat Mitch McConnell is through diverse states, Arizona, North Carolina, Georgia, South Carolina. We, the only way we're going to win is, is that way and have a wave election. And I think that I'm the best person in this field, clearly, to reignite that Obama coalition. So I wanted to turn to another issue, which is the big topic today. And as far as I'm aware, unless it's happened while we're sitting here, the House has not yet voted on impeaching President Donald Trump. But obviously, that's what everyone's paying a lot of attention to today. And you mentioned uh, Mitch McConnell. He, he said something on, on Tuesday's quote was, the House made a partisan political decision to impeach. I would anticipate we will have a largely partisan outcome in the Senate. I'm not impartial about this at all. And I'm just wondering your, your view on the impeachment process, this concern that it's become a partisan process. Like, I know when I talk to, to voters at, at rallies, a lot of them do feel like it's to some extent a, a partisan process, right? You know, we have Democrats who um, have obviously been unhappy with President Donald Trump and, and, and the way that he's engaged in his office, but they see it as a partisan fight. So I wonder if you worry about the impeachment process and, and the effect that it'll have on sort of moderate voters who are sort of stuck in the middle, wading through all the facts, you know, trying to figure out what's going on. So this is very troubling. Well, both sides of the if this is treated as a partisan process, as it is, it is very troubling if we look at it that way because it dilutes the, the gravity of what we're talking about here, which is removing a sitting president from office. That is something that, that it should make us all sad to think about, whether it's our party or not, um, that, is, that, is the pres- that is the president who's being removed. And, and, and so this is, to me, I, I, I just want us to really focus in about what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Did this president use his office, I should say abuse his office for his own personal gain, compromising security issues, the rule of law? And then did he, which is the second article, obstruct justice, the, the, the investigation, the proper investigation of that? So that's the question before the United States of America. Now, I actually don't think it's a question that did he use his office for personal gain? His own appointees, his own members of his State Department have all said the the actions he was doing was improper. 
He crossed a line. I think the real question before us is, is it an impeachable offense? The fact that Republicans can't even say that it was wrong, that is that to me screams of partisanship. Now, I should say Republicans as a broad brush because many have come out and said it's wrong. Republicans from business, from journalism, from uh, elected officials themselves. So I, I just I just can't let politics enter this. I will swear an oath to be an objective juror, and that's what I intend to do as a United States senator. This does not take away from my firm conviction to remove him from office through an electoral process. With that, I do have a, a degree of alacrity about sure. about beating him uh, beating him in, in an electoral process. But right now, this is a very sad day for America. Mm-hmm. It is it is not a time of of celebration. It is a deeply sobering, sad day for the United States of America that the House of Representatives, the people's body, is on the verge of impeaching this president. Do you think more needs to be done, though, to sort of, like you're saying, lay out the facts and lay out the arguments? Because so much of what folks are hearing does feel partisan. Like you're mentioning with, you know, Republicans standing behind the president, you know, and on the other side, you know, Democrats in the House leading this charge. It feels partisan to a lot of folks, even if, like you're saying, it shouldn't be partisan. So I'm wondering if you think there's more that needs to be done to sort of communicate that how you communicate that to sort of the the middle of the road everyday voter that's not you know they're just hearing the noise they're not necessarily tuned into the specifics of the process so there are a lot of actors in this right now i I have to commend nancy pelosi i think that she's been trying to navigate this in a way and and returning constantly to what the facts are Mm -hmm. i've seen senate colleagues of mine and their twitter feeds not joining the chorus of politics and and politicians, mm-hmm. but but sticking to the statesman focus on what are the facts of this case. Mm-hmm. And and I, I know there's a lot of people that are daily trying to do that. And so for me, I'm not I'm not using it as an applaud line, applause line on my on my town halls here in Nevada. I'm just not. I, I'm 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 focusing on the reasons I'm running for office and the issues of this campaign. This is not one of them. We have a duty to do. In, in in January, I will most likely be in my desk presiding over this and talking about it in these objective terms. So I don't know how this will play out, but this will come and go. And right now, most likely, as Republicans are already, from Lindsey Graham to Mitch McConnell, are talking very pointedly that, that, that we don't have the votes. It's a very high threshold to make. Um, it will come and go. And then we will be in an election year, mm-hmm. and I, and and then I think that this country will turn to that. What the, I don't care what the political implications are. Let me be very clear. This is a moment in time. History will look back when a president did what we now know in this fact pattern. Was that acceptable? It, it's not. Is there a system of accountability, checks and balances on that president? He seems to think there's no checks and balances on his power. Congress has an obligation to investigate. They investigated. And and so I just believe that history will look back on this as a time where states people did the right thing and didn't let this just pass because that sends a signal to every future president. Can you use your office for your own political gain? Can you solicit foreign interference in our elections? So so I, we the house is doing the right thing. And and it, and and regardless of what the political outcome of this, history will look back and see that when a president did the kind of things that this president did, people rose up to say it was said to say it was unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And by the way, those people that do not, that are defending this, they can't even admit that the behavior of this president was wrong. History will judge them as well. 
I wanted to turn to one more sort of national issue, and then we'll drill into a couple of Nevada-specific issues here. But obviously, the issue of health care is it's a national one, but it's obviously salient to a lot of folks here as well, trying to figure out how they're going to pay the, pay the medical bills and things like that. So you support Medicare for all, but you haven't gone so far as to call for abolishing private insurance, correct? So being in that position, that's, that's sort of a, if you want to view it in the context of the Democratic primary field, right? It's a middle-of-the-road position, right? You're not you're not on the, the you know, just expand on the Affordable Care Act side. You're not on the abolish it all, single-payer government immediately now, no, pri- no pub- private insurance. Um, you're somewhere in the middle, right? And it was a lane that I know Senator Harris was in as well, right? Somewhere in between those two, if you think about them as the two camps, somewhere in the middle. And I'm wondering if you found a difficulty in, in occupying that space with, you know, folks either wanting someone who's, you know, sort of stay the status quo, build on it a little bit, the more, you know, moderate option or the more aggressive, you know, immediately Medicare for all now, no private insurance. I mean, do you think it's difficult sort of being in that middle of the road lane sort of between these two, these two options, two buckets that people like to put? So I love, love, love the way you started the the question. Mm -hmm. You said to me, there are people really worried about their medical bills. And, and so the frustrating thing about this entire debate is people have been debating over things that I think leaves the average American, whether it's affording their prescription drugs or worrying about not having health insurance. It, it's We've had a debate that is, in my opinion, just not fully addressed their concerns. Mm-hmm. And what do I mean by that? Look, I think our system is profoundly broken. The most expensive system on the planet Earth, and we get the worst outcomes for industrial nations. It's just... There are people hurting because of the broken system, getting ground down in the unfairness of it all. I believe the best system for this United States is a single-payer system. And I can debate and argue that all all, till the end of the day. And I'll tell you this, it's not going to help folks. Because if you can't get the senators on the debate stage to agree on Medicare for all, it's not who wrote the damn bill. It's who can get a bill passed that's actually going to help people. And, And so I live... In a low-income black and brown community where people – this is a pain point for them. And and I need to deliver results. So I don't – I'm sorry. I'm not – these academic debates that don't connect directly to how are you going to deliver real change for people. So I don't know about moderate, middle road. I'm going to get – as president of the United States, every single day, I'm going to drive the ball down the field to lower your expenses and expand your access. And I'm going to be very candid with you that – the last president talked about, yes, we can. The operative word is we. It's not the loudest voice in this debate that's going to make the change. It's the person that can build the coalitions necessary. Barack Obama failed to do all the things he wanted to do. Barack Obama wanted a public option. Yep. Couldn't get it. Yep. Barack Obama wanted to drop Medicare eligibility down to, to 55 or 50. I can't remember exactly what it was. He was one vote shy. Mm-hmm. So he might have wanted a single payer, but he didn't get it. So my point to you is the best person on the debate stage right now who's shown time and time again in the Senate that I can build the coalitions to get big things done, criminal justice reform. Mm-hmm. I will be the person that in this – as the president of the United States that builds the coalitions for every American to be sure that under my presidency, I will drive the ball down the field to get you lower costs and greater access towards what I think the end zone is. It's a single-payer system. Sure. 
So I wanted to turn to some Nevada-specific issues with the time we have left. And so one of them is an issue that we've been talking to candidates about here a lot about. And you've taken a somewhat unique position on, I think, in the Democratic primary field, but that's the issue of sex work. I know that you've said that you support decriminalizing sex work, which a lot of your opponents do not support that or have not gone as far as that. It's particular relevance here, obviously, because we do have counties where sex work is legal. Um, I'm wondering how you envision that process of decriminalizing sex work taking place and, and what the federal government's role would be in that future. I really appreciate that question because a, a lot of times we talk about things like I'm for legalization mm-hmm, of marijuana, right. but I can only do that through federal laws. And at the end of the day, and I can, by the way, do a lot to help Nevada by by delisting marijuana and, and, and using the same way we did to ramp up the war on drugs. I can create incentives uh, through things like whether it's burn and JAG grants or what have you to do the right thing. This is the same thing. I am not going to be a president that mm-hmm. tells states mm-hmm. how to govern their uh, their laws in this area. I'm just not. But I am going to be somebody that through data, <laughs> evidence-based examples, through incentives that stops this over-incarceration of Americans. It's and 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 so this is an area where I think we've approached sex work in a way that actually often works towards greater exploitation of human beings, uh, that drives this further underground, that makes it escape common sense regulation. And and so as a guy who actually had to run a city where we saw these challenges, where you often see women getting disproportionate sentencing and punishments, uh, not addressing their health issues, their well-being issues. We could do this, I think, as an approach that would be more about restorative justice, Mm -hmm. safety, and security of all people than what we're doing now. So in the federal laws, I think we we can definitely rewrite them, reestablish them, and, and really start turning to the states and doing things to incentivize them to do the kind of things that uphold the values we all hold dear. Right. So you see the bulk of the bulk of the regulations coming from from states with the federal government support. Yes. Okay. And then it was you were talking about sending a lot of sex work underground and policies that have done that over the years. And I wanted to ask you about Congress passing FOSTA SESTA in 2018, which there's been a lot of controversy around it. For listeners who aren't familiar, it, it aimed at curbing sex trafficking, right? But there's been a lot of concern, you know, in the wake of that law from a lot of um, sex work advocates. I know there's been concerns specifically with trans women of color and the way that it's harmed their their ability to engage in, in sex work in a, in a safe way. And, and I'm wondering whether you, we should say that, that you and, and your, your, you know, I think all of your Senate colleagues who are running on the trail voted in favor of SESTA. And I'm wondering if you um, stand by that decision or if, or if you regret voting in favor of that bill. So, look, the, there's processes in Congress. Things like Medicare mm-hmm. have had an evolution. And, and you learn, you understand, and you see unintended consequences. And so, are there changes or are there things that we need to do better as Congress? Absolutely. And the most important part of that is by making sure that when you're making laws that you have the you're inclusive, that you have people at the table that are helping you design those laws and that legislation. So when it comes to the challenges of black trans women, for example, as the only person from the debate stage that has I think the the first time those words were ever put together on a debate debate stage was when I talked about the issues uh, that are facing the violence facing black trans women. So um, I'm going to be a president that brings people to the table to deal with complicated issues that are often regulated to the margins of our society. And because of that 
marginalization don't get the kind of justice that they deserve. And this will be an area in which I, I conduct myself that way. Are there specific changes that you'd like to see made to FOSTA-SESTA? I, 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 not the ones I would want to articulate right now, but they're definitely, we need to address the concerns uh, that have been brought forward by advocates. Okay. Another issue here that you may have heard about is the issue of gra- groundwater contamination related to the Anaconda Copper Mine up outside of Urington in northern Nevada. This is a big issue for the community there, but also specifically the Urington Paiute tribe, the you know groundwater contamination affects their water supply. And I know that you've called in general for cleaning up the sites of older environmental disasters and you know specifically talking about those that have hurt communities of lower socioeconomic status or, or, or communities that I don't have a lot of power. I mean, I'm wondering how your plan might help folks affected by contamination related to the mine. Yeah, so my plan actually specifically addresses mine cleanup mm-hmm. because of the, the experiences here in Nevada. And, and this is a larger issue of environmental justice. And that's why we're one of the few campaigns that has a major pillar of our climate plan is putting in hundreds of billions of dollars to clean up these Superfund sites, these abandoned mines, uh, to get lead pipes out of the ground. Mm-hmm. We the the lack of urgency on these issues, and for the communities in in this state, these are life or death issues, and so we are going to make massive investments in cleaning up these environmentally toxic sites, so that people have what I think should be a right in America: clean soil, clean water, clean air. Mm-hmm. Another part of this, I know one of your opponents, Secretary Castro, uh, was asked a question about this while he was here in Nevada, um, and he specifically called for not just tribal consultation, but tribal consent moving forward on projects of this nature, you know, making sure that, you know, if there is a local tribe, that they're actually not just being consulted, but consenting to this project moving forward. I'm wondering if you agree and what would support that for projects of this nature moving well, forward. Well, obviously, we need to address mm-hmm. the specifics, but I think there's a big problem in this mm-hmm. country that our federal government has not given all due respect the word sovereignty, mm-hmm. tribal sovereignty. And this is something that is really frustrating to me. And so my my beliefs uh, are resonant with, I think, what Secretary Castro was saying, which is just that we need to be a nation that starts to begin to respect the law and the ideals of tribal sovereignty, which we do not do uh, much in in, in in my in my opinion that has created so much of the injustices surrounding tribal communities so does that I mean does that go so far as you know tribal tribal consent you know making sure that they're consenting to these types of projects uh, again th- th- this gets complicated when you start drilling into the details which in it, but if your governing value is tribal sovereignty that's important but if you and I both have land and mm-hmm. something's going on on your land that's poisoning the water that's coming through my land you you have to deal with the you have to deal with that toxin. You have to deal with that problem. Mm-hmm. And it might necessitate for the for just human safety and environment us taking action to protect uh, people. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm saying that, in other words, I support free speech, but not absolute free speech. Sure, uh, sure. You can't cry uh, uh, fire in a crowded movie theater. So I, I am... I, I am governed by the ideals of tribal sovereignty. I do not think we have honored them mm-hmm. uh, um, in this in our country's uh, hi- recent history. In fact, I think there's been uh, uh, very unfortunate examples. That will be my governing value. But again, when it comes to health and safety issues that uh, compromise uh, water and the like, there, there has to be uh, um, understanding that whether it's your First Amendment laws, Fourth Amendment laws, I can go through them, that, that they're, they're, they're not absolute. Sure. 
So with our last couple of minutes, I wanted to ask you, we have a couple of fun questions that we've been asking. This has been fun so far. Why are you saying that this has been? Extra fun questions, Uh, um, if if you'd rather. So the first one is actually not a question. It's a test. Um, And it's going to seem obvious, but it's not obvious to a lot of people, especially pollsters and the national media. But we would like you to please name and order the first four early nominating states. And, And you know what this question is because of the absolute ridiculous disrespect that I hear it all the time. I call people out on it all the time when they go, they make, they make the mistake of saying, oh, Iowa, yeah. then New Hampshire, then, then South, South Carolina. Carolina. It's brutal. I know. It is painful. really brutal. It's painful. Especially because the whole idea, and this is where Harry Wisdom's, uh, Harry Wisdom, <laughs> maybe that should be his middle name, <laughs> Harry <laughs> Wisdom Reed. <laughs> but uh, my the guy who did so much for my family, mm-hmm. and I just want to give a shout out to him, and I, I spoke mm-hmm. about this during the time he's honored, I was not a nominee for our party for the Democratic seat. There was a crowded primary going on. My dad has a stroke here mm-hmm. in, in, in Nevada. And, you know, Harry went to his bedside. Right. I mean, he's just like one of these uh, heroically kind human beings. Mm-hmm. And I think that he did a service to the United States of America to make our early four primary states mm-hmm. not only racially diverse, but geographically diverse as well. And what do you do to the West? When you say to say when you when you characterize this as a way that 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 uh, that jumps over the third major right. contest, yes. so the order is <laughs> just so we it's have you on Iowa, record: New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina. Okay, good. I you wanted to throw right. New Jersey. I wanted to throw you New Jersey it. in there somewhere. Yeah, we're like, and then New Jersey's two yes. and a half. I think New Jersey uh, spirit hangs over all of those sure. early okay, early we'll, states. We'll go with that. Yes. <laughs> so the second one, and you can take a second to think about it if you want. But if you were a casino game. Which one would you be? You gotta be kidding me! No, it's a real question. Can I be a casino show? Like I love. Sure, why not? I mean, I I might be one of the Cirque du Soleil shows. Which one? one? (laughs) Oh my gosh, there's so many. Um, This is one where I can be problematic. I can't. That's fair. uh, I was gonna say, oh, I love water. I think it's a really beautiful. Oh, would be one of my top ones. It would definitely be. That's mine. And actually, that's where I started. I started with oh, and was just Mm -hmm. was um, I found it. Remarkable, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I, I, you know what? I just recently saw the movie of the the sleeper movie of the year that I want to uh, tell you to go watch is okay. yesterday. Okay, okay. have you heard about I, it? No, I haven't. It, it, it I, I was a movie I discovered on the plane. It's okay. about a guy that has an accident, wakes up, and the Beatles never existed. Oh, and he sort of has okay. to reinvent the music for for the world. And so I'm going to say that uh, the Beatles Cirque du Soleil. Okay, okay, is love. Ver- yes. very, 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 very beautiful. Okay. That is another really, really good one. I can okay. highly recommend it. Okay, third and final. And question. what was that title of it again? Can you say that again? Which one? The, yesterday? No, no. Oh, the, love. Low. Oh, Who's yeah, campaign theme yeah, talks yeah, about yeah, that all the time? Message, yeah. So is this not appropriate? <laughs> Tying it all together. <laughs> all together. Tying it all together. In a neat little holiday okay. bow. Okay. All right. Too neat. It's too neat. <laughs> it's too neat. Okay. This last question I'll make sloppy. Third, a third, and uh, <laughs> third and final question. What is your favorite movie with a scene from Nevada? <laughs> you know how many? This is the backdrop to so many I movies. Know. It is. It is. It's important. You got a lot of options. You well, got the, the Oceans movies. That's an easy one. Yeah, safe. but I don't want to go safe and I easy. I know. I know. So suddenly I'm a sci-fi. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you love Star Trek. Yes. I love Star Trek. Next yes. Generation. So good. Yes. By the way, there's some great casino games with Star Trek themes. Ah, true. So yes. you could have been that. I could have been that. 
That could have been that. But I think the bow we wrapped up was okay. so perfect okay. for the holidays. Uh, I'm going to go with one that combines my love of humor, okay. uh, corny humor, and my love of science fiction. Okay. So Mars Attacks. Oh, that has – okay. Yes. I haven't seen that in ages. It takes place in – there's a part in Nevada? Yeah. Okay. There's uh, – who's the guy that – um. Uh, da, 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 da. Who's uh-huh. a great, a great Vegas singer? Uh, yeah. Um. I just want your extra time. He does a version of Prince's song. Uh, anybody here? Producer man. No. No. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. I can't think of the name yes. though. Someone and, in our podcast will tell me. Yes. Just chiming in here in post production to say that that singer is Tom Jones. I will be yelled at now for not knowing we'll his name. We'll both be yelled at. It's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, Mars Attacks has a, has a lot of Vegas. Okay, in it. that's good. Yeah. Okay, I respect that answer. And what about you? Real quick. Oh, my favorite movie yes. in Vegas scene. I, okay, so this is. I would. I would go with the Oceans movies. I just oh, really like beautiful. them. They're really good. The scene just, at the Bellagio. The Bellagio fountains. That that's that you know is, with all of them at the end. Yes, yeah, that is yeah. one of my favorite. I, like, Denouement. That's a part of the. Yes. That's the French word yes. for the sort of wrapping up moment of the movie. My my thing. I don't as locals and your mom probably knows this too. As a local, you like never go to the strip, right? It just doesn't yes. happen. But uh, my favorite thing to do when I go to the strip is go to the Bellagio Fountains. I just love seeing them. So I think that that factors. So into one it. of my favorite traditions yeah. when I when I until I sort of recovered for president and was coming here for a lot of reasons, but I would come in mm-hmm. and take my mom. Then it used to be my grandma mm-hmm. out to whatever show they wanted to see. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so one of my best life memories, because uh, my grandmother is like a seminal figure in my life. Mm-hmm. She's Nevada for years, but she was born and raised in Des Moines, Iowa. Yes, yes. So tying together my early early yes. states here. But I took my – it was just me and my grandma. Mm-hmm. Took her to see – Celine Dion. Okay. And then Celine's manager invited us backstage. Uh So I'm literally hanging out backstage. I still have the pictures of my mom, my grandma, who's like four feet ten. Sure. And Celine, (laughs) who's this incredibly tall woman. Uh It's like this incredible moment of Celine and my grandma meeting. So it's one of my great great, Vegas moments. Yes. Great, great Vegas moments. We like those here. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Senator Booker, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you very much. Great having you. It's been great being here. (laughs) Thank Thank you. All right, so we are here at the the lovely KUNR studios in Reno, and I'm here with uh, Michelle Rendells and Mark Hernandez. Hey guys, how's it going? Good. How are you doing? How's it going? going? <laughs> Good. Um, and so, Mark, you you wrote a story about the ethics commission, and I'm, I'm going to let Michelle kind of ask you most of the questions. But can you kind of just give me a broad overview of, of what what the story is about? And it's going to be running a little bit later um, after this podcast comes out. But yeah, so the um, ethics commission released a report stating that. The difference between this year and last year, um, the increase in how many fines were issued and how many complaints were reviewed was a pretty large increase. So we're looking at almost 10 times the amount of fines imposed from 2018 to 2019. And just for some context, the Ethics Commission in Nevada is basically a body that reviews complaints that elected officials or public employees of some sort are maybe having a job that would be a conflict of interest or maybe hiring family members or doing something that might be inappropriate. So their jurisdiction is really just over public entities, right? So I mean they're yeah. not private sector – policing the private sector or anything to that extent. Yeah, no. This is all um, state, public, local. And, and so why why is it 10 times the, what it was last year? It's just the amount that's actually fined. Mm-hmm. And last year we had about 4,200 in fines for – I think four or five people. This year it was six people, but one of those people had $25,000 in fines themselves. 
And, and what, why, what was the $25,000 fine? That was for Lisa Cooper, who was the former executive director of the Board of Massage Therapy. And she actually used that position to pay herself in extra paychecks. So the amount of 25000 is about how much she ended up making of those uh, extra paychecks to herself. So she basically had to pay the money back. So did she face any other repercussions for that or did she just have to pay back the money that she, she paid herself? Was there, did she get fired or anything? She actually resigned before this all came to light. She resigned in 2016 and in 2017 um, they said that they were going to audit that. Got and it. then that's where this all came out. So one of the really interesting things about this year as opposed to last year is there was more activity related to the Las Vegas Convention and Visitors Authority. And some folks may remember um, the Review Journal did a lot of reporting on this issue. But you've got this uh, LVCVA, which is the entity that promotes tourism in Las Vegas. A ton of money flows through that entity because basically they have a, a tax on hotel rooms. This is a 13 plus percent tax on every night you stay at a hotel room. And a chunk of that goes directly to the promotion of more tourism. So a lot of money's flowing through, a lot of promotion and fun events and uh, big PR and marketing efforts. Um, but the problem was that apparently there was a, a scandal related to Southwest Airlines gift cards that uh, people that were in charge at that agency were misusing these and, and using gift cards for personal use. Um, so we had at least two people that were in trouble with the Ethics Commission this year directly uh, related to this gift card scandal. Mark, do you want to give us a little more detail on that situation? Yeah. Um, so in total, the two people on the list for this year were involved in the um, LVCVA scandal. But also, this has gone into criminal proceedings. There's a preliminary date for next year to see if this all goes to trial to see how that Ends up, but this was uh, about ninety thousand dollars of used gift cards for Southwest Airlines. So it's been the chair of the LV, uh, LVCBA, Lawrence Weekly, and then Kathy Toll, who was the chief marketing director. Both of them were fined in relation to this scandal, but they themselves had to um, pay the fines for this uh, during the ethics investigation. One of the interesting things is that, uh, yeah, there can be criminal proceedings for some of the actions that these folks are taking. Um, sometimes there is theft and fraud and things like that. But then there's also the idea that there's power that someone has as a state or elected official or public employee, and they're abusing that power. And that's sort of kind of where the ethics commission steps in. Um, I noticed some other cases that were uh, dealt with this year that were sort of like cases of nepotism where a guy made room for his son to have an internship at, mm -hmm. at his workplace and then eventually hired him on. Um, but, you know, there's rules against hiring, you know, people you're directly related to. Uh, and so the Ethics Commission stepped in and gave a fine to this guy, even though he said, you know, I didn't know that this was against the rules, but I'm going to get more training and maybe avoid this type of situation in the future. Mark, another thing you've written on the ethics issue earlier this fall. And basically what you found was that Nevada actually ranks relatively high for the strength of our ethics commission and the activity that it's doing. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your findings from that uh, report in September? Yeah. So in 2018, the Coalition for Integrity, which used to be a member of Global Transparency, which is the international organization that confronts corruption, especially on local and state politics. Coalition for Integrity showed that Nevada actually ranks eighth for enforcement and transparency of all ethics rules. So in that regard, Nevada does very well of showing what's going on, 
the actual follow through with any laws being broken or any violations. They're on top of it when it comes to Nevada. So I think it's pretty interesting that Nevada, as a public employee or maybe an elected official, you can have a lot of conflicts because, for example, you're a legislator. You're working part-time as a legislator. So you also have a day job. So maybe there's a, a, a situation where an action that you take as a legislator, a vote that you take, could potentially be kind of unethical. Uh, maybe maybe you're doing something that will enhance the value of your own property or, or uh, that will help your own business. And so that's kind of the point of the ethics um, commission is is for people that have a lot of different interests going on, personal interests. They've got business interests and, and their personal financial gain. Um, and they have to balance that with making sure this position of power and authority is not being – Misused, and, and and you see that you see that a lot during the legislative session, right? A lot of a lot of uh, state senators and state assembly people will they'll recuse themselves from a vote because you know it could potentially be a conflict of interest for for whatever their employer may be. Yeah, and one of them. Big example of that is a uh, James Orenshaw. He's a state senator, and his wife is the executive director of the Nevada Dispensary Association. So he's obviously handling a lot of bills that have to do with marijuana. Uh, but whenever those come up, he gives a statement or refers back to this big, long written statement that uh, his lawyers advised him to give to say, you know, I'm going to step back from this uh, so as not to help the marijuana industry in any special way. And that would in turn kind of enrich my wife and enrich my household. So, uh, yeah, people need to be aware of situations where they're employment or their spouse's employment or their children, those interests might collide with things they're voting on. And the Ethics Commission has been asking for more resources. Isn't that right, Mark? Um, in the legislature, they didn't get them. No, they haven't gotten what they've been a- what they've been asking for, but they were actually pretty positive about the next coming legislative session. They think that they have a pretty good, with their eighth ranking um, nationwide, they believe that they'll be able to get a little bit more funding to be able to go forward with this. Um, But they have been putting in a lot of extra work when it comes to how many complaints, how many have been investigated. This last year was 123 um, complaints issued, and out of those, 28 warranted further investigation. So Yeah, so they can go to the legislature next session and say, we've been busy. We've been Mm -hmm. holding people accountable (laughs) or at least, you know, kind of resolving people's complaints and saying, you know, this wasn't (laughs) worth further investigation or whatever. Right. Um, And and can go to the legislature and ask for more staff or whatever they need to try to, to boost their effort to... Keep uh, Nevada public officials and state workers kind of on the up and up. Yeah. So, Mark, this this story will be running um, kind of over over the Christmas break, but um, this will be your 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 last podcast with us. You're you're finishing up your internship, right? Yeah, I'll be uh, I'll actually be done on Friday, so yeah. this will most likely be the last time I'm in here. Yeah. Well, we wanted to just say you know thank you, and did you enjoy your internship? We're going to plug it a little bit here. I thoroughly enjoyed my uh, internship. If yeah. anybody gets the chance, you're going to enjoy it. Like it's a great opportunity, and we're not we're not making you say anything like that. No, no, no. But no, there's not a gun in here just like loaded at me. Yes. No, I'm no, I'm very thankful, and I've had a great time, and working with all of you have been an absolute pleasure. We'll we'll miss you a lot. So thank I you. I appreciate all. that. Thank you.
Okay, and now on to the last segment of the podcast, and we are all scattered across the country at this point. It is the last day before we all go on break for Christmas, and we were all just messaging, chatting about Christmas movies, and I asked everyone what their favorite Christmas movie was, and so I'm just going to go down and read what everyone said that it was and why they like it so much. So reporter Jackie Valley said, and I'll quote, I'll nominate Ernest Saves Christmas, mostly because viewing the first 20 minutes has become a tradition with my cousins. It's tacky, and surely rates very low on any Rotten Tomatoes ranking. But there's something endearing about Ernest's zeal for spreading Christmas cheer. Reporter Michelle Rendells said, One of my favorite movies is the cartoon version of The Christmas Carol. I often think of the moment when Scrooge wakes up and realizes that there's still time to do good in the world, and we should all remember Jacob Marley's advice, Mankind was my business. Associate Editor Luz Gray said, I like A Christmas Story. It's cute and funny, brings good memories, and my family enjoys watching it every year. And since it plays all day long, it's good to have on the TV in the background while we cook for dinner. Editor John Ralston said, I'm a sucker for It's a Wonderful Life. Yes, I'm a geezer, and I'm sentimental. But I also nominate Elf and Bad Santa. Reporter Jacob Solis said, I vote for the live-action Grinch. There is no better surreal portrayal of the holiday. Jim Carrey presiding over a two-hour fever dream is my definition of a good Christmas movie, and I won't be persuaded otherwise. Reporter Riley Snyder said, My favorite Christmas movie is Elf. It came out when I was 11, and I don't think I've ever laughed harder in a movie theater. Now that I'm older, I better appreciate the sincerity and message, but it's one of those movies I always want to watch around the holidays. Reporter Megan Messerly said, Mine is obviously a Christmas prince. As I have said on Twitter before, and I will say again, who needs journalism school when you can watch a Christmas prince? Like the movie's heroine Amber Moore, I too take excellent notes. Like, the prince is still reluctant. Why? It's more than just nerves. And the prince is definitely starting to trust me, but can't seem like I'm praying. I've been saving a Christmas prince 3, the royal baby, though, so no one spoil it for me. Managing editor Elizabeth Thompson said, The Nightmare Before Christmas, after tolerating decades of sticky, sweet, predictable movies about a jolly do-gooder, Santa traveling the world and handing out free stuff with eight adorable reindeer, Nightmare Before Christmas brings a welcome change and some proper holiday intrigue. In my favorite part, Jack sends three heavily armed homicidal children who work for a torture-loving gambling man to bring Sandy Claus to him in Halloween Town alive. I also like Elf, Love Actually, and The Christmas Carol with Patrick Stewart. <laughs> Reporter Daniel Rothberg said, Elf, but I, I'm embarrassed to admit I always watch Love Actually at least once a year. And for me, my favorite Christmas movie is Raymond Briggs' The Snowman, not the weird murder mystery from 2017. But Raymond Briggs was an author uh, in the 80s, and in, like I think, 1987, he made a beautifully hand-drawn uh, movie with almost no dialogue at all. It's basically just music and animation. Um, I just remember watching it with my family every Christmas, and I, I still do, actually. There are several versions of it, though. So there's one with like where David Bowie does an introduction with it, and then there's one that's narrated, and that one's really bad. So try to find the one that's just music. Um, that's the best one. I'm also a sucker for Charlie Brown. So those are all of our favorite Christmas movies, and we hope that you guys have some, too. If you do, you can send those in and email them to us. And we hope you have a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thank you so much for sticking with us this year. We really appreciate it, you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. I'd like to thank Senator Booker for joining us on the podcast today, as well as Megan, Michelle, and Mark. 
If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you can do so by searching for Indie Matters on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you have comments, criticism, praise, or want to tell us what your favorite Christmas movie is, you can do so by emailing me at joey at the nbindie.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, you can email editors at the nbindie.com. Reno band People With Bodies does our theme music, and you can hear more of their music on Spotify or Bandcamp. We will be off for Christmas and the new year, but don't worry, we'll be back in 2020, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and ready to cover the ever-present 2020 presidential election. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Mm-hmm.